this morning, before we kick off our brand new message series, I want to share with you a couple of updates and um, speak, to my, speak from my heart just a, a little bit. Uh, this past Easter weekend was probably, uh, for a variety of reasons, one of my favorite Easter weekends in, in quite uh, some time. I thought Pastor Caleb gave the best Good Friday sermon that I've ever heard. Uh, that night was truly worshipful for me. Our Good Friday attendance was up uh, by triple digits. And the reason that that means a lot to me is because that just means more people were a part of the worship service together hearing about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Uh, the reason that uh, Easter services were able to happen the way that they did is because we have an army of volunteers here, people who are serving and volunteering in kids ministry on the kitchen team, on the serve team and guest services. We had volunteers put in hours and hours of work to be on the worship team, to serve in the tech team. And I would just ask you, would you join me in celebrating all the people who volunteered just to say thank you. We appreciate what you did. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, you've heard me say this a lot. I look forward to when I start hearing you say this, leadership is a destination of discipleship. For every one of you who gave your time, your resources, your energy, your gifts, your skills to join together in order to help people take their next step towards Jesus or their next step with Jesus, thank you. Over our Easter Sunday weekend, we had over 2,400 people here, and for the first time in really quite a long time, our, our attendance was spread out evenly over the three services. And let me tell you why I think that's such a big deal. Because that meant that people, especially guests, did not have to sit in overflow seating. It's always a better experience when you have a seat in the room. And this is why that happened. Because many of you chose to go to the 11.15 a.m. service, even though that was not your first choice on a Sunday morning. And when you chose to do that, you did so living out one of our values, honor guests enthusiastically. We care more about your experience than our own. And as your pastor, I just want to say that I am proud and I'm grateful. So thank you. Now, we're in the second quarter of the year, and so I, I want to give you just a quick financial update. Every week when you come in, you can grab one of these uh, note sheets you, to follow along with the message on the back. There are a few announcements at the bottom. We try to keep you informed about where we stand financially. Uh, we have on one side what we think our projected giving should be at this point of the year and then what our actual giving is. There's a small gap. Uh, it's just, but it's a gap. I wanted to share that with you. As you know, churches are crowdfunded organizations. And for those of you who give financially, I want to say thank you. Your, our ability to do ministry, everything that we do ministry-wise is funded by your generosity. And it means the world to me that you want to be a ministry partner in that way. And for those of you who would say, this is my church, or these are my people, and I like it here, I love it here, and you haven't yet taken the step to, to contribute financially, I want to ask you, would you be willing, would you do that? Because when you do, we're inviting you to be a ministry partner with us. I have no idea who gives and who gives how much. We take some steps to make sure that I just stay away from that information. I don't want to know. But when people give for the first time, I never know amounts, but when people give for the first time, I'm given a list of names typically on a Monday morning so that I can write a thank you note to those folks. And if you've ever gotten that note from me and you can read my writing, then you know. I'm just saying to you, thank you for being a ministry partner with us. Probably my favorite notes to write to first-time givers are when kids from our church are the first one, are the first-time givers. That's such a sweet thing. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, a young girl in our church who got a card from me came up to me and she said, Pastor Rick, I got your note, but I don't read cursive. So... <laughs> 
Lesson learned. Lesson learned. All right. Um, no cursive for kids. All right. So that's the that's update I wanted to share with you. Let's pivot now to, to launch into our brand new message series to help us do that, to help us transition. Turn your attention to the screen. fascinated by your response to that. And I would imagine that our response has fallen on a pretty broad range that some of us just might be surprised. Wait, Jesus suffered anxiety? Some of us might be comforted by the idea that Jesus felt anxiety too. Some of us might actually be offended right now at the idea that someone would say Jesus felt anxiety. And whatever the answer is to this question, did Jesus feel anxiety? Do you know why it is so incredibly important and relevant to all of us right here, right now, today? The writer of Hebrews says this, for we do not have a high priest. He's talking about Jesus. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize, unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Your heavenly father, one of the reasons your heavenly father wants you to be confident when you turn to him in prayer is because, because of our savior, he is empathetic with us. Jesus experienced our weaknesses. He's fully God and fully human. He fully experienced our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities too. And if you're not convinced, if you're like, say, I don't know, Rick, I don't know if I'm ready to, to take it that far. I want you to think about the night that Jesus was arrested. He's hours away from the cross. The, uh, Luke wrote about it this way. He said, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat, was, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This was originally written in Greek. This word in Greek is word agonia. What does that sound like? Agony. And it's literally translated anguish. It's also literally translated as anxiety. That night, Matthew was there, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the close companion of Jesus. And he wrote down what he heard Jesus say to him. And Jesus said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, when Jesus talks about anxiety, he is talking to us as someone who is both the ultimate authority and someone who is the ultimate insider. He gets it. He gets us. Jesus felt anxiety too, and yet he never worried. It never turned into worry for him. But because Jesus understands it, because he experienced anxiety, I just think he should get our full attention. I think he should get our full trust. And I'm just going to ask you to get honest with yourself and with me in a hurry. When it comes to the experience of anxiety or the experience of worry, I mean, don't we need truth, like life-giving truth? How many of us could say, I could use some grace? How many of us could say, if I could get help or healing or freedom, I would love that? You know the statistics as well as I do. I bet some of you know these statistics better than I do. We've really seen this happen over the last three years. We are at all-time highs in depression, divorce, suicide, 
crime rates, and substance abuse. And some of those things that I listed off, they have real medical realities. I'm not a doctor. I am a pastor. And some of those things that have real medical realities, they require a medical response. Today's message is not at all intended to be a replacement for a medical response. But today we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk to you about anxiety, the real universal experience of anxiety and worry. Anxiety and worry are not the same thing. It is not wrong. It is not a sin to feel anxiety. Worry is a different story. Jesus felt anxiety. He never felt worry. And so we're going to turn to what is probably Jesus' most famous sermon ever. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to read. If you want to pull out a Bible from the seat back in front of you, you can read along. If you want to pull out your phone and read along, you can do that. I'm not going to put the words on the screen. Some of them I'll put up later and we'll, we'll break them down. But what I want to do right now is I just want to read it to you and I want you to sit deeply in your chair and let the words of Jesus just fall on your heart. Let these life-giving words of Jesus fall on your mind. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And you know this, you know whenever you see therefore, you know what's coming next is an application of the truth that was just given. So what did Jesus say right before this? You cannot serve both God and money. I'm curious, is there anybody else in here who you've ever felt like if you could add a zero or two to the end of the number in your bank account that you'd be immune to worry? Anybody else? Just me? All right, we got some liars in here too. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I know we got a lot of medical people around here. Who's, where are some of my medically trained people? Could you just throw your hand up real fast? All right, medically trained people. Would one of you be willing just to stand up where you are? You don't have to come, just stand up where you are and explain just real quick some of the medical benefits of worry. <laughs> we, don't, we don't even have to know to know. We don't have to be trained. You don't even have to go to WebMD. You know, not only are there no benefits to worry, there are only consequences to our physical health. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do you believe that God is fundamentally irritable, grumpy, and mad? Or do you believe that fundamentally he's love? Do you know that he sees you, that he loves you, that he cares about you? And Jesus says, we gotta know that the answer to that question is yes. Because when we know that, we'll be able to follow along with this. So do not worry. Do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, people who don't know God, they run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things are gonna be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Years ago, my wife gave me this photo, and I love it. It's a gift that I cherish. Isn't this cool? She got it from the Imperial War Museum in London, and I just think that this is a totally, I'm captivated by this photo. I want this guy uh, to be my barber. This is a real World War II fighter pilot, and he's in between battles. He's in between insane moments of chaos, and yet he's calm enough to read a book and enjoy just kind of the everyday stuff of life. And I've often wondered, looking at this photo, what is it about that guy that allows him to just kind of calmly go through life in the middle of war? And believe it or not, there, there, there's psychological reasons for that. Psychologists during World War II discovered some things that we believe that have powerful impact, and they discovered it when they were studying the impact of combat on troops during World War II. Let's start with ground troops. They discovered that after 60 days of combat, that ground troops became emotionally dead. They stopped caring, and largely because they felt like they had no control over their life. Fighter pilots were different. 93% of fighter pilots reported being happy during World War II, even though they had a much higher mortality rate than ground troops. They had a 50% mortality rate. And psychologists discovered that that ground troops went emotionally dead because they felt like they had no control, but because fighter pilots literally had their hands on controls, they believed that they had more control over their life. It's fascinating. This is an observation. There's a response to anxiety that's built on delusion, and there's a response to anxiety that's built on reality. I want reality. I bet you want reality too. And yet, and yet, these fighter pilots, even though the illusion or the delusion of control gave them a very real antidote for the feelings of anxiety and worry, but it didn't make them any safer, did it? So there are some counterfeit responses. There are some counterfeit solutions to anxiety. One is get in control. The other is give in to apathy. And on one extreme over here is just be emotionally dead, be apathetic, and don't care. That's one extreme. On the other extreme is get all the control that you can. And I think there's probably too many people in life who are bouncing in between these two extremes somewhere on the spectrum. Probably there's a few of us in here that find ourselves bouncing in between these two extremes as well. But the way of Jesus is not found somewhere in the middle. What Jesus is giving to you and to me is something entirely different. Jesus said, the pagans, people who don't know God, people who don't have the faith, they, they run after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. First, let's recap. The things that people are running after, he said, are food and clothing. It's probably helpful for us to remember that those are two things that took a lot of time and energy back in the day. You couldn't just run an errand and get food. It was a lifestyle of hard work. People didn't have a bunch of different outfits to wear. They had a few pieces of clothing. And the thing that ties food and clothing together in this is that food is constantly spoiling, being consumed, and needing to be replaced and clothing is constantly wearing out. And so these two needs 
are urgent, unrelenting, costly needs. And if Jesus were giving this sermon to us today, I don't know that he would use food and clothing as the illustration. Maybe he would, but I think maybe he would talk about health care and careers. A couple of things that really dominate our time, dominate our thinking, and have a major impact on our finances. And Jesus is saying, people who know their heavenly Father. It's not like they say these things are unimportant. They're not unimportant. They are important. But they don't chase after them to make their lives important or to make their life more secure. People who know their heavenly Father are defined by and live for things that are more important. And Jesus says something here that I think is really easy for us to miss. And we can't miss it. And we can say it, but not necessarily see it. He wants us to think of God as our heavenly father, as our parent. And so before we can get into some highly practical stuff about how to respond to anxiety by trusting Jesus, but first we've got to do a deep dive on some real theological stuff. We've got to understand what does it mean that God is our heavenly father? Heavenly father means that God is simultaneously the ultimate authority, he's sovereign, and he's immediately personal, he's dad. It's important that we get both of these concepts. I think it's urgent that we comprehend both of these concepts. I want to draw your attention to this word right here, dad. When Jesus was talking about God as heavenly father, it was radical, it was revolutionary for people to hear that. He was pushing his audience to see that God is closer, he's more personal, he's more intimate than maybe they had ever conceived before. And if that is lost on us, it is tragic if that's lost on us. And I think that we might have a vulnerability to kind of miss out on exactly what Jesus is saying because when we say father, like father typically isn't a super personal term, is it? Right? It's not an affectionate term. My daughter says father when she's disappointed in me. Father? It's a distant term. It's a, it's a formal term. It's more cold than it is warm and affectionate. And if we really want to get what Jesus is talking about, we got to think dad. Or if we really want to get what Jesus is talking about, we think Daddy. In the same way that a little one comes running and jumping into his arms at the end of the day and says, Daddy's home. In the same way that a teenage daughter who can barely get out the word dad and she crumples into his arms, a tearful mess after a stressful day. In the same way that two men sitting in a fishing boat and the younger one turns to the older one and warmly says, Dad. All that warmth, all that closeness, all that intimacy, all that affection is what Jesus wants us to understand when he says, Heavenly Father. If you were here last week and you heard our Easter message, you might remember that when Mary Magdalene was squeezing Jesus tightly after the resurrection, he says, you gotta let me go because I have to return to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. If you want freedom and help in times of anxiety, if you want to know how to live free from worry, we have to understand his ultimate authority and he's immediately personal. We have to understand his sovereignty and his closeness. And so to get that, we've got to do a little theology 101 together. God's sovereignty means that he's the ultimate authority, always in control, and perfectly manages all things. 
And God's sovereignty is, is a big topic, and people ask all kinds of thick, robust, important questions related to it. And in a message like this, I don't have time to cover all of that, and you don't want to sit and listen that long, and I'm not that interesting. But there is kind of an entry-level question and there's a common question that people ask when we start thinking about God's sovereignty, that he's ultimate authority, always in control, and perfectly manages all things. And the question is this, does God being sovereign mean that God causes all things that happen? The short answer to that question is no. Sovereignty means that all things are under his authority, not that all things are determined. We've got to get this. God is always in control. That does not mean that he's causing everything that happens. Does God cause things? He absolutely does. Does God cause every single thing? No, he doesn't. When I lose control of my anger, who did that? Me. When you do something that you're not proud of, something that you regret, who did that? You. When a, when a hurricane hits a coastal city, unless God says, I did that, I caused that on purpose, we should not blame him as though he caused it. Sovereignty is a complex tapestry of God causing events, allowing events, and not allowing events throughout history. I need to acknowledge, you need to know that there are good-hearted, very smart people who love Jesus who disagree with this perspective. And they would say, no, 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 God does. And, and maybe you Maybe you disagree with me on this perspective. Maybe you're the person who's saying, Rick, listen, somehow, some way, behind it all, God is determining and decisively causing all events that happen. Okay, what I'm going to say next, you, if you believe that, what I'm going to say next, you have to embrace it. And what I'm going to say next is either an irony, a tension, or a contradiction. You're going to get to decide. You pick. But if you believe somehow, some way, behind it all, God is determining and decisively causing all things, it's one of these three. So this is my statement. You have to believe that God determined for you to be here, that God determined for me to be the pastor, and God determined for me to teach to you that not all things are determined by him. Now, listen, I, I get it. I get, I get it that you want to laugh at that. Okay, all right, go ahead. I, I, but, but hear me. I don't mean it as a joke. I really don't. When I say there are good-hearted, smart people who believe that, and it's not, I'm not just giving lip service, that's true. It's not a joke, but it's one of these three. It's an irony, it's a tension, or it's a contradiction. So let's, let's keep this train going. God is sovereign. And we have to make, and we get to make real and meaningful choices. And that's called human freedom. Human freedom means that you could have chosen otherwise. It doesn't mean that you can override God's sovereignty. You get to make real and meaningful choices. You could have chosen to sit in a different seat than you did. You could have chosen to wear different socks than you are. You could have made different choices today and yesterday and every day of your life leading up to this moment and all the choices that you made, you could have chosen something differently. But you cannot override God's sovereignty. If God chooses to cause something, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And that's good news. If God determines to not allow something, there's nothing we can do to start it, and that is good news. Now, you and I, we make real and meaningful choices where we could have chosen other than what we did. And our choices exist inside of a universe that God designed on purpose to operate with a magisterially complex series of cause and effect relationships 
And your choices come with benefits and consequences and outcomes of all sorts. And that's why wisdom is so incredibly vital and important. There's an entire book of the Bible called Proverbs that's dedicated to wisdom over and over again in the Old Testament and over and over again in the New Testament. We are told to think with wisdom and to act with wisdom. Have you ever noticed this verse in Proverbs before? A person's own folly leads to their ruin, and yet their heart rages against the Lord. Rahul Agarwal is a friend of mine from seminary, and he's a pastor. This is how he summarizes that verse. I love it. He says this, never blame God's sovereignty for things that are actually the result of your irresponsibility. Now, this is where we probably need some good news. All the stupid stuff I do and you do, all the sinful stuff I do and you do, all the morally broken, all the regrettable stuff that I do and you do, God is so loving and he is so powerful that he sovereignly acts to align it all with grace. And all the injustice in the world, all the wrong, all the death, the disease, the hurts, the things that happen to you and to me that are not your fault and not my fault, God is so loving And he's so powerful that he sovereignly causes them all to align with grace. If you have never memorized this verse, you need to memorize it, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in some things, God works for, is that what it says? What is it? We know that in? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. The difference, and there is, The difference between the person who experiences this and the person who doesn't isn't that one is smarter and one is dumber. It's not that one is better and the other is worse. The difference is one person looks at their life and their sin and their moral mess-ups and they humbly repent and turn in faith to Jesus and the other person doesn't. That's the only difference between the person who gets to experience this and the person who doesn't. Which one are you? And which one do you want to be? Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? When Jesus said that, that we should think of God as our heavenly Father, and that he values us. He was not trying to give people the warm and fuzzies. And he was not being patronizing. He was declaring a truth that should go off in our lives like an earthquake. And when we understand the implications of this truth, it should ripple through our lives like a shockwave, shaking us free from worry and wrong thinking and wrong belief. The God who is above and behind and beyond the universe is close. And he sees you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. Would you let that truth settle on you? And I know that even when I say that, there are some of you right now, you think it's for other people. You don't think it's for you. Would you write this down? If you think your life is too insignificant to notice, it's not your view of self, but your view of God that's too small. Would you be surprised if I told you? Would you be surprised if I told you that worry is not the absence of faith? It's not. Worry is misplaced faith. And when you worry and when I worry, 
It's because we're putting our trust in something that we know might let us down. Let's look again. Look look again at this key sentence that Jesus gave us. For the pagans, those who don't know their heavenly father, they run after all of these things, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow, it's going to worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So this is where I'm asking you to get real with you. What do you trust? Who are you trusting? If you've been around for a bit, I hope that you remember our working definition of idolatry. Do you remember what an idol is? It's anything we look to other than Jesus for significance, security, and satisfaction. Whenever a follower of Jesus worries, whenever it's me, whenever it's you, any of us, every time it's an indicator, every time it's exposing that we are trusting something other than our Savior. Warren Wiersbe is one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers, and writing about this passage, he says this, The person who pursues money thinks that riches will solve his problems, when in reality, riches will create more problems. Material wealth gives a dangerous false sense of security, and that feeling ends in tragedy. The birds and lilies do not fret and worry, yet they have God's wealth in ways that man cannot duplicate. I think that you and I need the joy and the freedom and the help and the healing that comes from remembering our Heavenly Father is sovereign. He's the ultimate authority. He's always in control. And he perfectly manages all things. Can I be frank? Do you give me permission to be super candid or should I skip to the next thing? All right. You're never going to experience the benefits of it. You're never going to experience the benefits of your heavenly Father freeing you from anxiety and worry until we happily place ourselves underneath his authority. That's part of, and it's a big part, of what Jesus meant by seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness. And so I've got a sample prayer for us that can helps us happily place ourselves underneath God's authority. Dad, I trust you. Do whatever you think is best in your timing and in your way. I know you've got my back and I'm not backing off of that. I know you love me. I choose to delight in and rest in however you decide to exercise your authority. Do you think you could pray that prayer? So what now? When we bring our belief and we bring our thinking in line with the deep theological truth that God is our heavenly father and that he is sovereign. So what do we do now? What about in those times when we feel anxiety? I wanna give you some practical helps. I don't have time to preach through them, but you're a smart crowd. You don't need me to preach through it. You just know it, you can do this. Based on that belief, based on the foundation, your heavenly father loves you and he's in control. When you feel anxiety, this is what I want you to do. Have you picked up notes? They're printed out on your notes. If you're a digital person, uh, you can get this on the digital notes that are on our website. 
But when you feel anxiety, get honest in prayer. I want you to read 1 Peter 5.7. I want you to express gratitude specifically. Read Philippians 4.6. The next one is refuse to grumble. I like to skip over this step. I'm encouraging you don't skip this step. <laughs> read Philippians 2.14-16. Get honest with other believers. And this is what, you're going to read Galatians 6 too. This is why we get honest with other believers. Because our honesty invites them in to help us carry burdens that are too heavy for us to carry by ourselves. Do you got, do you got burdens that are too heavy to carry by yourself? I do. Here's the last one. I want you to talk with a counselor. Read Proverbs 19, 20. And I don't know if anybody has any stigma related to this, but if you do, put that stigma on me too because I go and talk to counselors. And there have been times in my life that I have just needed someone who is incredibly skilled at seeing the way forward and helping me understand what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and asking really good questions and giving really good advice and sometimes kicking me in the butt and helping me walk out of it. It's a powerful thing. You have a heavenly Father who is near and who loves you. And Jesus said some pretty amazing things. And we know that he meant it because he proved it by going to the cross for you and for me. And we know those words are not empty words because the tomb is empty. The resurrection validates everything that Jesus said. He gets it. He does. He gets us. He gets you. But here's the question. Does he get your trust? Does 